Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths Faithful Volunteer in and Christ Follower's Bible Ford. Study. Thanks we're for joining in the book in of Acts. We're in chapter 16. We're going to be starting in verse 25. This is our 33rd episode in Acts. And we have with us Mark Horton will lead us and we'll open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, for this study that we've been uh, doing in your word here. We appreciate uh, Mark and, and all his research that he's done and studying uh, for for this study. And we know that he always brings out so many interesting things uh, during this. And we ask that uh, we can absorb some of these things and, and apply these to our lives and let our light show to other people. And thank you, uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, well, good evening, Mark. Good evening. It's good to be back with everyone. I've been uh, reviewing at the beginning of each of our sessions, but just going to forgo that tonight. Uh, feel free to listen to any of the earlier sessions for you to bring us up to date, but we are looking at Acts as the systematic and complete restoration of Israel as promised throughout all of the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, we've got a section of the book now that leaves that major theme behind for a while as it instead relates a historical narrative of here in chapter 16, basically on into chapter 20. So we want to, we're going to go a little faster, hopefully, through the, this historical narrative, pointing out a few interesting things as we go, and we want to move towards some of the trials of Paul, where we're going to find out some amazing things that are not pointed out in most Christian assemblies uh, in the United States uh, today, but which will really help us to get a better grasp of the whole story of the Bible, I think, when we get there. Now, in chapter 16, a new leg of the Great Commission has been launched or reached in that they've crossed over from Turkey, or Asia Minor, as it was known in those days, Asia as a continental mass, and they've crossed over into Macedonia, part of Greece, and Europe. And so this plan that we read about back in Acts 1, where the gospel would go to Jerusalem and Judea, then to Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, now they are reaching out uh, further here, and they got to Philippi and 
found a, a, a tiny group of people who were familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, and they had been working with them, and then they uh, cured this slave girl who was possessed by a demon and had a gift of uh, prophecy that brought great gain to her masters. And as a result of curing her condition, Paul and Silas, although both Roman citizens were beaten and thrown in the inner prison with their legs trapped in stocks. And so that brings us to 25. So let's read, please, verses 25 through 34. But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And when the jailer had been roused out of sleep, and had seen the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you shall be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were, the, were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. All right, excellent, Leslie. Thank you so much. Jailers in the Roman period, many of them were retired Roman soldiers. It was an excellent job for a retired military man. He was able to finally have a family and yet use his military training. And being in the military, they would have been incredibly well-versed in the understanding that if their prisoner was uh, lost or damaged while under his care that you would be responsible for whatever sentence your prisoner had had passed on him or uh, the death penalty if you lost a prisoner. If the prisoner was injured, you would have that injury inflicted on you, although they weren't really concerned about chafing from stocks or chains or iron collars or anything like that. Kindness was not necessarily a quality that retired soldiers were high on, but uh, they did understand the gravity of their responsibilities. We don't know if this man was a retired soldier or not. I find it interesting that this is one of the first families that we know about who in all likelihood had absolutely no background or knowledge of the Hebrew scriptures. Thus far, the non-Judean people, Gentiles as it's used, are, are in the English translations like the King James. Not a very good word. Just the nations or any non-Judean person would be a Gentile. And most of them had been attending a synagogue or studying the Hebrew scriptures. 
before they learned the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they would have been able to put the picture together. But there's no reason to think that this man and his family would have had any contact or knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures, the history of Israel, or anything like that. What we see here is that they are just brought into immediate contact with the miraculous power of God in this earthquake. Some translations say opened, some say the doors were opened all at once, but even the stocks and chains and collars and everything were all unfastened. So this is not a natural event or a miracle that can be interpreted as a natural event. The jailer had to be aware that this was a divine intervention of some sort and had no doubt at all about it. Adding to this is the idea that uh, most prisoners would have raced to escape uh, as soon as they had an opportunity, and yet these prisoners did not do that. And the other prisoners were probably in some kind of shock. Paul and Silas were able to kind of take charge of the situation, being aware that the jailer would want to kill himself so that he wouldn't have to be uh, tortured to death with all of the tortures and penalties that all of these prisoners would have incurred on themselves, it would be much easier to take his own life as he thought the prisoners had escaped. So he rushes in and he's able to sense through sight and sound and touch that something way beyond a natural, a freak natural event has occurred here. And he has lights turned on and and falls down and, and asks, what must I do to be saved? And he's told to believe on the Lord Jesus, of course, and you'll be saved, you and your household. And the whole household is assembled. And this, this would have been his children, his wife, uh, any other relatives living with him, parents, uh, aunts, uncles, and all the servants were considered part of the household as well. So... Paul and Silas are able to speak the word to all of them. And after dressing their wounds from the flogging and the, the, the chafing and all that, uh, he was baptized immediately, or, and, and this is the word immersed in English, not translated intentionally by the King James translators. Uh, they were immersed immediately together with all who belonged to him. And notice up there earlier, it just says in verse 31, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It doesn't say believe and be baptized and you will be saved. But obviously, we we get from this that that baptism was a part of belief. Uh, Demons can acknowledge the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, but it is not a saving belief or faith. The belief that is commanded by Jesus and all of his disciples is a belief that acts in confidence on the word of God. And baptism is the point of being brought into the spiritual kingdom of God, the spiritual body of Christ, the spiritual bride of Christ. And I believe every conversion that we will see in the book of Acts uh, involves baptism and just as a commentary it it is it's almost unique in the world that the southern baptists 
in the United States have delayed or separated uh, baptism from a belief in a new convert. What we see in the Bible is immediate immersion of believers, and yet the Southern Baptist Church intentionally makes you wait a week or ten days or a month or a year or something like that. This is apparently not done in Baptist churches in other parts of the world, but it is done in uh, several of the Baptist denominations uh, here in the U.S. and other denominations as well, but it's really unique to American evangelical culture, as uh, Frank Viola and some of the simple church leaders have pointed out. As part of their movement, they have restored the Bible practice of the immediate baptism of believers, which I personally think is a very, very, very good thing. Anyway, he has no delay. His, his Baptist pastor doesn't tell him to wait a week or a month or a year to make sure he feels good about it. He is immersed immediately together with all of his household, and he brings these prisoners from the innermost dungeon up to his table in his house. And, I mean, so he's, he's become family with Paul and Silas. So their relationship has changed uh, dramatically. Having believed in God, he rejoiced with all his household. So, any other thoughts or comments on this section? All right, well, let's uh, move on and read 35 through 40, please. Now, when day came, the chief magistrates sent their policemen, saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The chief magistrates have sent to release you. Now, therefore, come out and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and have thrown us into prison. And now are they sending us away secretly? No, indeed, but let them come themselves and bring us out. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. All right, thank you. So the, the day before, there had been more or less a riot stirred up by the uh, men that owned the slave girl over the loss of their source of income, they were able to stir up the masses, override uh, Roman law through mob action and so on. This, this had died down by the next uh, morning. And the ruling authorities of the city decided that these two wandering Judeans had been uh, taught whatever lesson they needed and uh, they could now be done with the whole situation by releasing them, getting them out of town in a hurry, in all likelihood, they would leave and never want to come back. The lictors, their enforcement officers, came over to the jail to tell the jailer to release the prisoners. But Paul and Silas uh, heard the report from the jailer, their their new brother, and Paul does not take them up on their offer to just calmly leave town quietly. 
he understands that the law has been violated and spells that out there in verse 37, that they were beaten without any kind of a trial and thrown into prison, and they want now they want to get rid of us uh, quietly. So he, he says, have them come over here. Mark, I have a question. Yes. How would Paul and Silas verify that they were Roman citizens? Did they carry some kind of something uh, that designated them as citizens? Not a passport, but did they have something? And was it just their word? Or well, apparently, a Roman citizen could claim his legal rights by making the affirmation, uh, which I can't pronounce in Latin, uh, "Cius Romana Sum." I am a Roman citizen. And uh, I would assume that if anyone made such a statement falsely, that they would be put to death. There would have been a register of Paul's citizenship back in Tarsus, and he may have had a copy of this that he carried around with him, but Roman citizens, you know, did, I mean, they would have viewed it as a... As a <laughs> Uh, as what's going on in our country today, as a denigration of their rights uh, to have to prove it. They were free citizens, so they could just state it. And, of course, if anyone claimed that falsely, there must have been a a horrible penalty for it. Anyway, we're not really told, but that's what we can tell from, uh, from Roman history. It's an excellent question. Some wonder why he didn't get this out the day before, and we don't really know. You know, these are very condensed accounts, but, you know, with the screaming and howling of the mob, I mean, no one might have been able to hear them or even give them a chance to utter a word, you know, uh, so we just don't know. But now the praetors of the city are very upset to find out that they, who are responsible for the administration of Roman law, have utterly and completely failed in their primary responsibility. If word of this treatment uh, reached any of their superiors, they would be in real trouble. So they had to crawl over to the jail. I mean, they walked, but, you know, their their head is dragging in the dirt, figuratively, as they had to... They may not, not have ever been in the jail in their life. They had to go over there personally and uh, beg... Paul and Silas to leave, they had no authority to expel a Roman citizen from any from their city or any any city, but they had to uh, basically get their cooperation in leaving quietly and not exposing them as utter and complete failures. And so Paul and Silas are accommodating, and they apparently to some extent accept this uh, official apology. And it may have served to protect them for a while. We find reference in Paul's letter back to these Christians in Philippi that they were enduring persecution at that time, some years after this event. So they, uh, I'm sure it would have been good news to the, to the group at Lydia's house to learn of the jailer and his family. And then there were tearful goodbyes and... Luke may have stayed, and probably did, Luke probably stayed behind to continue the instruction. And we're going to go all the way over to uh, chapter 20 before Luke uses the pronoun we again 
and he's at Philippi at that time, so he may have been there the entire time in between here and when Paul comes back over in Acts 20. This group of believers in Philippi continued to show great kindness and hospitality to Paul and helped us to finance his travels and to support him during his time of imprisonment, which Paul addresses in the letter that he wrote to the Philippians. All right, any other thoughts on chapter 16? If not, let's read then the first four verses of 17. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of the God-fearing Greeks, and a number of the leading women. All right. Thank you, Leslie. Mm -hmm. So, when Paul and Silas left Philippi, they would have taken one of those famous Roman roads, which was equivalent to an interstate highway today, something with a deep foundation, totally paved in stone, great way to travel. This one was called the Ignatian Way, and uh, it would have been basically along the coast of Macedonia, the southern coast on the north uh, shore of the Mediterranean Sea there, or whatever little sea comes off the Mediterranean uh, in that area. It would have taken them two or three days to reach uh, Thessalonica, which was then the principal city of Macedonia. It was separate back then. Greece proper was down where Athens and Corinth were, and uh, Macedonia was kind of separate. Today it's, it's one country. Thessalonica is still the principal city of that uh, region of Greece. You know, it had been uh, built oh, around 315 B.C., uh, by uh, Cassander, who was a relative, uh, or at least a relative by marriage, of Alexander the Great. And, yeah, they've gone 62 miles. Now, they've passed through two other towns where, as far as we know, there was no synagogue. And we're going to see this. This is so overlooked today. But Paul viewed his mission to the nations not to stop and preach the gospel to every human being that he saw. He saw his mission to the nations as requiring him to reach every known Judean synagogue in the world. And that's how he fulfilled his mission. So he could bypass uh, these two cities without uh, having any kind of guilty conscience whatsoever. And we'll see him do this over and over again. He's going to go to find a synagogue. 
unlike Philippi, where there was not a formal synagogue, there was one in Thessalonica. So there was a larger Judean community there and a complete set of the scriptures. And he uses their weekly meetings and their custom of allowing visitors to speak at their assemblies to teach uh, Jesus of Nazareth and the restoration of Israel. And we'll, we'll see that proven later on in Acts because he's going to say that he preaches only the hope of Israel. So Jesus and the hope of Israel must be synonymous or at least closely related. But he's teaching this from the Hebrew scriptures. He opened them up and demonstrated the events that fulfilled these Old Testament scriptures. Uh, So much of the non-dispensational world of churches in America today have this strange idea that they kind of adopted, instead of dispensationalism, that God was through with Israel at the cross and that the Old Testament was nailed to the cross and it, it has no relevance to us whatsoever today. But yet here is Paul, years after the cross, using the Hebrew Scriptures to prove the gospel, to prove the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, to prove that God was not through with Israel, but was systematically fulfilling every promise made. And there's many of them. If you just flip through the Old Testament, he's fulfilling all of these uh, promises and proving that this Jesus I proclaim to you is the Messiah, which means the anointed one, which means king. He's assumed David's throne over Israel. And, and this is very important and just glossed over as people read the New Testament today. They, they just gloss over all of these important connections and the nature of the gospel and this restoration of Israel. And as uh, we have, Mark, may I yes. interrupt to ask oh, sure. a question? Of course, uh, if you say the restoration of Israel anywhere in the world today, immediately people's minds are going to uh, flip to a white flag with two blue, blue lines and a big star in the middle of it. And one of the most evil and corrupt governments, perhaps, on the face of the earth. And I'm wondering about this idea of Jesus instructing people to go to synagogues, although it seemed like that would be a very practical way to go. Uh, if you were visiting a town and you wanted to meet the people that uh, you were trying to recruit, it seems logical that a good salesman would go to the places where they are. But where does Jesus ever say that in the commission that uh, he instructed people to go to synagogue? He did do that himself, of course, and, and spent a lot of time in the temple. But it seems to me that uh, that, that the emphasis on uh, reaching only Hebrew practicing people was really not what Paul's commission was all about. Wasn't his commission to go to the nations? And uh, wasn't his use of the synagogue just a practical place to do that? Well, this is an excellent question. We've carefully tried to lay the foundation that the book of Acts is talking about the restoration and the spiritual transformation of Israel. The promises were not made to a, a new entity called the church. 
I mean, that word is not even in the Bible. That's a Scottish word for church building. The word ecclesia that, you know, is translated iglesia in Spanish as church, that is an assembly, a called out assembly. And that is the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament for Israel or synagogue. Synagogue is a synonym of ecclesia. And neither one of them are proper names. They are just descriptive nouns talking about a group of God's people. God's people are Israel. Now, God's people are being transformed at this time, and that is the story of the book of Acts. Paul says it in Romans, I went to the Judean first and then to the other nations. This was his methodology. And he received that methodology from Jesus Christ one way or another. I don't know exactly what words were given or whatnot. But this was the methodology and the plan. If we understand that the nations were to be brought in to God's kingdom, which is Israel, transformed into a spiritual kingdom, it makes a lot more sense. And, and again, we've been given this idea for at least a hundred years or longer that the church is some new entity that has completely and totally replaced Israel. And the dispensationalists go crazy with this, saying that, well, the church, God hadn't even thought of it during all the Hebrew times, and he had to come up with it at the last minute when his plan failed, and the church is just a temporary group of God's people holding the place until God can come back and succeed where he failed before, and the, the church will be raptured away, and then God will come back, and then he will fulfill all those old promises to Israel. So there's a lot of this weird idea, but once we see that the other nations didn't form some new entity that took the place of Israel, that's not what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that the nations were gathered into Israel, which is a spiritually transformed kingdom of God. It is the throne of David turned into an empire into which all are welcome from all nations and the gates are open to there. So we have to change our paradigm. We have to challenge things that we've been taught our whole lives to really get a grasp of this. If we can catch this, the difference between what we've been taught and the English Bibles and what the, the, the real Bible is telling us, we see that it makes a lot more sense. The next sentence here, right after we took this digression, says that they found a large company of God-fearing Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So God had been preparing for this to happen for a hundred years or more more and more of the Greek-speaking peoples had been coming in and studying the Hebrew Scriptures. And so Paul can come into this prepared group, and the Judeans there get to hear it first. But we're seeing over and over that a significant, if not a vast majority, of the Judean people and the circumcised proselytes are rejecting the message. But these God-fearing Greeks, who are people who are not eating a kosher diet, They have not been circumcised, but they are learning about the God of Israel. That's the real audience, and they are in the synagogues. And these people know the scriptures, so Paul can go in there. He can give them the good news. They can become baptized believers, and then they will then 
Paul can go on to the next synagogue and leave them behind to apply their new knowledge, which is just, I mean, they already knew the scriptures. Paul has come in and opened their eyes to see how the fulfillment of all these scriptures is Jesus Christ and his spiritual kingdom. And they put it together quickly, the light bulb comes on, and there's an instant army of educated believers who are able to go out and share this in the community and the region. And this is, this is Paul's plan. I, and we see it over and over and over again. I can't tell you exactly how it was communicated to him, but it, it's starting to make a lot more sense to me when I understand the nature of the kingdom and of the relationship of these New Testament believers to the Old Testament believers and so on. It's not like there's a clear break. It's that there's a, you know, there's a transformation that's going on throughout all of the New Testament, building up to a great consummation you know, within their generation. I guess what I'm getting at, I'm, I'm wondering about, is the presumption of the holiness of the so-called Judean people who weren't in Judea, when we have this evidence of the incredible corruption of Israelitism that resulted in Jesus' persecution and and crucifixion. Um, Are are we to presume that these people that attended these synagogues were God's chosen people, holy, carrying out the ancient laws of of Moses, or were they corrupted... uh, the same way that uh, those in Jerusalem were, where they were essentially Talmudic followers of the traditions of the elders that Jesus preached against. Were they not Pharisees like the people in Judea? Or uh, It seems to me that it's almost as though we're saying that, uh, gee whiz, these are still the chosen people. What uh, God has got to do is bring them back into the fold, and then he can go on to the rest of the world. Yeah, that's exactly what we are saying. I mean, because that is exactly what Paul says in the Roman letter. That is, you just succinctly summed up Paul's letter to the Gentile Christians in Rome in your in your last statement there. Okay, well, I guess that's an issue we'll have to debate when we get to Romans. Yeah, but it's good to bring it up now because it's tightly interrelated. They, I mean, what Paul basically tells us is, yes... Israel is the apple of God's eye. They are his chosen people. And and basically the Gentiles in Rome were writing them off for exactly the same reasons that you just described. And they weren't paying any attention. They were meeting with them so that they could hear the scriptures read, but they were blatantly not following dietary regulations that God-fearing Greeks followed as a matter of courtesy in the synagogue community when they ate together. It was so is, a, a, is the Messianic church of today that basically holds that uh, a Christian is a Jew that had something added, is that Jesus' true church of, of today then? Well, no, I mean, is that his true church? No, I mean, no human institution is God's church of today, number one. Now, I, you know, are there well, they, they do claim that. Uh, that's, that's basically what the Messianic, Messianic Church proclaims, is that, uh, is that Christianity is Judaism with something added on. Well, you know, that's, we, could, we could spend the next uh, three hours 
defining every term in that statement, uh, you know, and and uh, and we've we've covered most of that ground uh, numerous times in our previous sessions. But there is a, a kernel of truth in that thought. I mean, we the word Israel means they rule with God, and just as in the days of David and Solomon, when many foreigners came into the kingdom and were part of it, now under Christ, the kingdom is open to all people of any background, any nation, and so on. So we're not talking about any kind of genetic blood, anything. We're talking about a community of all of those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And just, again, understanding that the word church is not a proper noun. It is not an entity that is mentioned in any of the Old Testament prophecies at all. It is just this idea of the assembly of God's people and that we have been added to Israel. And this is what Paul, you know, will explain. He does a little bit of explaining in his letter to the Galatians, but but then he does a lot of explaining about this in his letter to the Romans, which has been totally misconstrued out of context. But this doesn't, by any stretch of imagination, mean that I or this examination is going in any sense towards a, a different direction or in any is giving any credence or biblical connection to God's spiritual kingdom and the present-day state of Israel or present-day Jewish groups of any kind, because th- that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm just saying that at this time in the first century, there was a transition period in which the physical Jew was given a special priority, but it was only going to last for that one generation until the destruction of the Judean nation, the destruction of the temple, and so on. Paul clearly states it. We went to the Judean first and then to the other nations. Christ said, I have come only to the lost sheep of Israel. So they they had priority, and that's because they were slated for complete destruction. So you have to take this with an understanding of the context and the time, and that today is not the same situation by any means. And within these synagogues, you had some of everything. But remember, earlier in the book of Acts, the common people of Jerusalem and Judea accepted the apostles joyously. And most of them accepted Jesus joyously. It was the leadership of the Judean nation, which was one and the same with the religious leadership, that was utterly and totally foul and corrupt and immoral and so on. And we we will not find any of that community in these Greek-speaking synagogues, but we will find devout Pharisees, just as Paul had been in them, we'll find Sadducees, we'll find, we might find Essenes, we might find a lot of Hellenists. I mean, these synagogues were very pluralistic communities. It was everyone in the area who had an attraction to and a desire to learn from the Hebrew scriptures. And so they had to allow all these different sects and, and, and so on. I'm sure some people were influenced by Kabbalism, others were not. I mean, it was a real mixed bag. But what we see is that there was a remnant of righteous Judeans in these synagogue communities. And Paul had 
a burning passion that he would reach every group of these people while he lived and give them the opportunity to believe on Jesus Christ so that they would be transformed and would not be utterly destroyed uh, along with the bulk of their nation at the end of the age, which was coming upon them quickly. So I tried to cover everything, but you said a lot in a short time, so I may have missed something there. Okay, thank you, Mark. Yeah, but anyway, it's no, this is something we do need to revisit as we go along because this is way different than anything I was ever taught. But it's really exciting to me that, you know, it's bringing a lot of these things together and it's really stealing. I mean, one of the greatest uh, arguments the dispensationalists make against any who disagree with them is they're anti-Semitic. You, you believe in replacement theology. And when we really go in and carefully define our terms and things, we see that that's not what happened, and that's really not what we believe. We just haven't described it. I mean, when we say the church is Israel now, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. But it's not that there was this old Israel, and then they ended and died, and then God created a new Israel. There is a continuity that, or they overlap for 40 years, and the righteous remnant out of the old Israel was transformed into the first fruits and the foundation of the new spiritual Israel. And we are the heirs of that. Modern day people who claim to be following the law of Moses are not the heirs to that. But those who understand the spiritual nature of the kingdom are. And there's a lot of different uh, viewpoints under that's a broad umbrella, I guess is what I'm saying. Anyway, okay, I'm dragging this on now unnecessarily. Uh-huh. Oh, we, we're we running low on time. We got carried away. Does someone else have a comment here? We're the living stones of the church of Jesus. Right, and Jesus said, I tell you, I can, God can raise up children of Abraham from these stones, and that's exactly what he's done, you see. He has taken us who were not physically descended and he has turned us into those living stones of the spiritual temple so it's uh, it's quite exciting to see how much simpler the true gospel is than all of these convoluted man-made explanations that are so difficult to follow and so convoluted and depend on so many still future events before you really think that they've got it all together these people understood the power of it, and, and they're excited, just like we saw back in uh, Galatia earlier in the book of Acts. The, the Greek-speaking attendees of the synagogue are just so excited they can hardly stand it. And so here, this large company of God-fearing Greeks, along with a minority of the Judeans, attach themselves to Paul and Silas. They become this new family just like when Paul and Silas sat at the jailer's table over in Philippi. Great. This is probably a good place to end. That was a very fascinating story, and we thank Chuck for his insightful question there and your very thought-provoking answer. We look forward to continuing on next week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast, and please visit our website, whtt.org. 
you will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.